Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for relationship. Uh, Lord, I thank you for my friendship with Jeff and my growing friendship with the, uh, the leaders here, the elders here. Thank you for the opportunity to be with them and to be with the men in this church. And we pray today that you would help us to think about your word and apply your word. And most of all, I pray that you would give every man in this room a much greater vision for what you've called them to do on a daily basis. I pray that the regular mundane stuff of life would have a new value and a new dignity in Christ after this day for every one of us. Lord, help us not take for granted the days we have, uh, but help us to steward each of them for your glory. Fill me with your spirit. Give us ears to hear your word and hearts to respond, we pray, and to walk these things out together as brothers. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, one of the really interesting ways to track our culture, this is a little, a little obscure, but one interesting way is uh, each year, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary comes out with new words. You know, the English language is growing, and each year there are new words in the dictionary. They come out of what's happened uh, in the previous year. So here's some of the new, new words that are in Webster's Dictionary. Uh, now, is, is anyone in here an English teacher? No, anybody like you really like words and language and grammar? Anybody, just Jeff, anybody? Yeah, I mean, this is going to hurt your heart because some of the stuff that's in the dictionary now is, is very sad for someone who's a pure English kind of person. So this, this is now in the dictionary as of this year. The word, am I right? Am I right? It's spelled A-M-I-R-I-T-E. It's slang for am I right? The three words, am I right? It it's, it's, it's a, represents a phrase uh, of a question in informal speech. For example, English spelling is consistently inconsistent. Am I right? Uh, so that's one that's being used. Uh, another one, this is in the dictionary now. FTW. No vowels, just the nouns. Anybody know what that is, FTW? For the win. Yes, it means for the win. So that is now a, officially a part of English language. Uh, here's a few coronavirus words that are now in the dictionary. Breakthrough. Breakthrough is an infection occurring in someone who is fully vaccinated against an infectious agent, uh, often used before another noun. Breakthrough cases, breakthrough infection. Here's a new hyphenated word that did not exist before this last year that's in the dictionary. Super spreader. Super spreader is an event or location at which a significant number of people contract the same communicable disease. Uh, super spreader. Um, here's a couple of words out of politics. I can't believe this is now a word. What about ism? What about ism? It's the act or practice of responding to an accusation of wrongdoing by claiming that the offense committed by another is similar or worse. Kids have been saying that for decades. You know, you didn't clean your room. Well, what about my brother? This is now a word. What about ism? And the British English word is what aboutery or what aboutery, I guess. <laughs> what aboutery. So that's actually an official word. Looking down, the, looking around the room. Looking in the mirror and looking around the room, I thought this, you'd be glad to know this is in the dictionary now. Dad bod. This word is in the dictionary. A physique regarded, uh, regarded as a typical of an average father, especially a physique that is slightly overweight and not extremely muscular. 
So you can go home if you're married to your wife and say, baby, I'm in the dictionary, dad bod. It is, it's official. These two guys up here do not have dad bods, obviously, the guys who won the, won the push-up contest. Uh, here's the last word I want to share with you, and it came out of coronavirus as well. Digital nomad. Anybody heard that term, digital nomad? It's not used often. A few of you heard this word. A digital nomad is someone who performs their occupation entirely over the Internet that's not unusual. But here's the other part. Someone who performs their occupation over the internet while traveling, especially a person who has no permanent home address. So there's now a word in the dictionary that is a class of people who live their life as nomads. And it's presented as an idea that is adventurous, exciting, sort of a, an amazing lifestyle that because you can do your whole job on the internet, you can live at the beach for a month, and then you can go live in the mountains for a month, and then you can go live in New York City for a month, and then you can go live in the woods in a cabin for a month, and then you can just live with absolutely no commitment, no entanglement, except as long as you've got internet, you can do your life and live your entire life digitally without a permanent address, without a place. And when I saw that, it made me think how important is our place and what a loss it is to lose your place and I want to talk today I want to lead us in thinking through your place and I want to call this your place matters because God created us to live out our lives and our callings in a place um, I, I think thinking of place this may sound a little vague but it's going to get concrete especially at the end. I think thinking about place and the places we are and the places we live is a great way of, of applying a scripture like Colossians 3.17. We may have that for you. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is, this is what it means to follow Christ in all of life, that all of our lives, our words, and our actions are done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this can feel a little vague, but I want to lead you to think about the places you live, because I think, and you work, and the places you recreate, because I think um, that l being faithful in our multiple contexts and being faithful in the relationships we have in those multiple contexts is a way to practically think about living out all of life for the glory of God. Think about the places and the relationships or the potential relationships in your life. So who's in your home? Uh, who is with you at work? Who is with you where you recreate? Or maybe you have a hobby or where you do your hobby. Who, where do you shop? Where do you eat? Where do you hang out? Where do you volunteer? Where do you worship with the people of God? Um, these kinds of places are the places that we live out our faith. You could say it this way. Your place is your context for discipleship. Your place is where you follow Christ. Uh, we are embodied. Jesus didn't create us merely as spiritual people, spirits. We are embodied. That is, we have flesh and bone. We are embodied people in a place, and we walk out our discipleship. We express our calling to love God and to love our neighbor in the places that we are. So to develop sort of a theology of place, I want to talk about place in the Bible. I want to start at the very beginning and look at the, the, how the Bible runs 
you could think about the idea of place and have a whole theology of the Bible. The whole story, the Bible's one big story, and the whole story could be tied to place. So here's how it goes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that exists, God created, but he didn't just create uh, a universal creation. He created humanity, the first man and woman, and he put them in a specific place. Because unlike God, God is omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. But humans are given a local, defined existence in one place. I can only be here. My family's in Dallas. I cannot be with my family and be here physically in the same moment. So we are given a place. Genesis 2.15 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So Adam and Eve are not only given work to do, but they're given a place to do their work. We'll talk about work in the second session. Uh, they are to multiply, to take dominion, to work and keep the garden. So from the very beginning, God puts humans in a place to serve him with a specific task to do in a tangible location. Um, it begins in a garden, and ultimately the Bible ends with a place as well. It begins in a garden, it ends in a city, the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, the new heavens and new earth. We will spend eternity in a place. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve disobey God. They rebel against God. They want to be their own gods, and so they eat the fruit from the forbidden tree, and their rebellion leads to a curse. So because of their sin, they are cursed, and it brings a number of changes to them and to us. Most notably, it brings judgment and death. But one thing we often overlook is part of the curse, it's often underemphasized, under is that they lose their place. They are driven from their place. Genesis 3 says this, 3.23 and 24, therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he, was pla he placed the cherubim and a f uh, flaming sword and turned every way, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So part of the judgment was not, you will surely die, that was part of it, but you lost your place. Being displaced is not a blessing. It's a curse in the Bible. To have no place is a curse. It's not an adventure and an ideal and a romantic way to live your life forever and ever and ever. Um, it, it is to lose place is to lose, um, a, is to lose in, in essence, God's presence and calling for what he's called us to do. One author, Craig Bartholomew, says, human identity is deeply bound up with place. And in Genesis 3, displacement is at the heart of judgment. So the first people that read this, the first Hebrews that read this, they would be stunned with the idea of being displaced because in their history, we'll look at this in a minute, but in their history, being displaced was a bad thing. So they wander 40 years in the desert without a home at one point. That's terrible. They, they disobey God and they're removed from Jerusalem later and taken to live in Babylon. That's the judgment of God. You lost your home. Uh, so... It's not something that is to be desired. It's something uh, that represents a, uh, a loss. And we don't feel that. I don't know enough. I've asked a lot of questions. I'm learning about your environment. I don't know enough about your culture here uh, in the city. But in, in, on average, the average American moves 14 times in their life. I've probably moved that much. 
the average American moves 14 times in the life. We are like one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, transient cultures in the world. So in other places in the world, people don't move 14 times in their lives, but they do in the U.S. And so we're used to the idea of, you know, picking up and, and leaving our place. But in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, man and woman are emplaced, and then they are displaced, and then they look for replacement to find a place that God leads them to. And so that's the next thing that happens in the story. There's creation there's, and a place, the garden. There's fall and the loss of place. And then the next thing that happens is a promise of a new place. So God comes to uh, Abraham in uh, Genesis chapter 12, and God tells Abraham to leave his place and that God will give him a new land, that God will give him a land, that God will make him a nation, the people of Israel. And through this nation, all the people of the earth will be blessed because Jesus will come through them, through, uh, through this new people, the Israelites. And so God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your place. You are going to wander, but I'm going to give you a nation. And I'm going to not only give you that, I'm going to give you a special place, a temple in the middle of your nation where I'm going to uniquely dwell. So God establishes the people of Israel. Uh, they are taken, uh, made slaves in Egypt. They're miraculously delivered from Egypt, um, and uh, they're given God's law, but ultimately they disobey God, and I mentioned earlier they wander uh, for 40, uh, 40 years before they settle. Finally, they settle in their land. God builds them a temple uh, through Solomon, the king. The people of God live in their land. They're to be a light to the world. They're to worship him, but they turn to idols, and he sends prophets to warn them, and they continue to worship other gods and worship other gods and worship other gods. And then ultimately, God judges them and sends in the nation of Babylon to capture them and take them away to another land. So judgment is represented by losing your place and going to an ungodly place where the, to, to lose the blessings of God that they had in Israel. Well, they, they, they serve God in a foreign land, ultimately, and he brings them back and reinstalls their place, rebuilds their temple, rebuilds their, they rebuild their city, and he gives them the promise of a Savior who will come and restore everything that was lost in the garden. And so Jesus, the Savior, comes some years later after their displacement in Babylon, and he arrives in the midst of his people, and this is what John 1 tells us about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt is a place word. So God becomes man, leaves heaven, and comes to our place and takes up residence. Jesus, fully God, fully man, takes up residence among us. There's a paraphrase of the Bible written by a guy named Eugene Peterson, uh, it's not a translation of the Bible. It wouldn't be a study Bible, but it's a paraphrase that has really some great sections to it. Uh, it's called The Message. And uh, Eugene Peterson writes, this is his paraphrase of John 1.14. So the, the ESV, which is the Bible I'm reading from, says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how the message paraphrases it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God becomes man and moves into the neighborhood. He takes up place among us. He's born in a place, Bethlehem. He grows up and, and works in a place, Nazareth. He preaches the good news of the kingdom in various places. He dies in a place, Golgotha. 
He's buried in a place, a borrowed tomb. He rises. God, God gives him new. The Father brings him to life. He rises from the dead for us. And then he ascends to the right hand of God and in a place uh, rules from a throne. And after that, in Acts 1, so we're just still going through the story of the Bible. In Acts 1, he gives a promise that he'll pour out his spirit. Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in places, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in the Old Testament, God uh, gave them a place, Israel, and dwelt in a place, the temple. After Jesus, God pours out his spirit and dwells in us and then puts us in places where we gather together in churches and are light in those places of darkness. So the gospel spreads, people believe, churches are planted in the book of Acts, and the kingdom takes root, the kingdom of God takes root in people's lives who follow Christ together in places like this, where the people serve God together. And this is why if you're new to the Bible, the New Testament is not made up of just random theology lessons or random stories. I mean, there's a few that are sort of just uh, that aren't maybe rooted in a locale, but most of the New Testament is letters written to people in a place. They're not just, he, here's truths about God. Number one, God, they're not written like a statement of faith or a, if you know what a systematic theology is. They're not written like a systematic theology. They're written as letters. Paul writes to the people in Corinth who live in a Greek city with a culture and a history and religions all around them. And he says, in your place, this is what it looks like to be a faithful representative of God. He writes to Thessalonica. Peter writes to Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia, Cappadocia, and says, hey, in these nations, I mean, in, I'm sorry, in these areas, in your place, this is what it looks like to walk out your faith in a Gentile world. So the entire New Testament is rooted in places. If you are a digital nomad, there is no digital in the first century, but if you're a digital nomad, you don't even ever hear the Bible. Because to hear the Bible, they don't, everybody didn't have a Bible. You have to go to a place, gather in a living room or some kind of building with people, and hear God's word read. And as the people walk out their faith in a place. So the difference in the new covenant and the old covenant is God sends his people to infiltrate the world and form communities in places to, to, to faithfully walk out their faith embodied in a locale known by a particular people, known as witnesses to Christ in a place. So we're not called to be like just together as Christians in a holy huddle or the believer's bubble, just being together, we're called to be out where we are in the places God has put us to worship him and live out our life before others. This is our actual worship. Our actual life of worship is wherever the places you go, wherever you go after this today uh, is your place where you're to live out your faith and walk out your faith uh, publicly. Wherever you go to work on Monday, uh, whatever you do after work, Monday night, these are the places God has called you. And that's actually your worship. So the New Testament makes clear that we're to live all of life in worship for the, uh, for the Lord. And wherever we are, that's where we express worship. Many of us may think this is the room we express worship. When I think about my worship life, it's right here. It's in my small group. And it's when I read my devotions. But the Bible says, yeah, this is a place to worship. But it's just one place, and it's a place you don't spend very much time in. 
uh, you don't spend much time here. You express worship wherever you go. Listen to this paraphrase by Eugene Peterson again. This is how he paraphrases Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So he's saying, and the Bible says this, more importantly, Romans 12 says you offer your life as a living sacrifice, is how the ESV says it. He just fleshes that out and says, you're sleeping, eating, working, walking around places, that's your offering to the Lord. So you're called to worship God and live for him in all of those different locales, where you work, where you sleep, where you eat, where you play, uh, where you work out, where, you, uh, where your kid plays soccer. All of these places are where you're to live faithfully. And let's conclude the Bible story here before we have some application. We live faithfully with one eye on this place, wherever you are, and one eye on our future place. Because John 14, in John 14, Jesus says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. <clears throat> believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare, but would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you uh, know the way to where I am going. So we're going to a place, a place where God is preparing a place for us. Jesus is preparing a place for us today, um, which is an amazing thought, that we're called to be faithful in this place as we're on our way to another place, the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the story of the Bible. It's crea creation, uh, and people placed in a place of God's blessing, people sin and being displaced, people, God coming to them and promising he'll give them a new place, to, uh, promising Abraham, giving them a new place, a land, Israel, where they're to walk out their faith as a light to the nations, a temple where he uniquely dwelt. They disobeyed again, they're displaced in Babylon, uh, they come back and await a Savior who comes, who is God in the flesh, who moves into the neighborhood. He comes to us in our place. He dies and rises and then pours out his spirit to give us his spirit. And then the early church is sent out to declare the good news. And wherever people are in all the cities of, of the New Testament and now the world, uh, people hear the gospel and they come together, form churches, and then gather for worship and then scatter for the their weekly worship of living all the life of the glory of God in the places he has called them as we live faithfully anticipating that he is building a place for us now and will come back and we will spend all eternity with him. So that's the story of the Bible with place as the theme. How do we apply these scriptures and these ideas? Here's a few ways to think about this. Number one, think about what does faithfulness look like in your place? What does faithfulness look like in your place? Now, I've been talking big picture, 30,000 feet. I'm going to get extremely granular and practical, extremely practical right now. I want you to think about where you live. And I want you to think about what does faithful discipleship look like in your home? You may live in an apartment or a townhome, a row home, a house, so you may, wherever you live. I want you to think about what does faithfulness look like? What does faithfulness, let's be very practical, what does faithfulness look like in your living room? 
Living room is a place where we can walk out our faith, if you have a family, with our family, or if you have roommates, where you can be together with those God has called you to. Maybe you have a small group that meets in your living room. That is a way to faithfully walk out your faith with the people of God. Maybe you invite your neighbors over to watch the game, whatever you do in, in, in your living room. Hosting your neighbors, it's a place to walk out hospitality and take your place for the glory of God and use it to share the good news. Maybe you enjoy the good gifts of God, of appreciating, appreciating art. You watch a film, a movie. Uh, film, is, it's artsy, I guess, and everything else is a movie. But you watch a movie or, or, or something that where you can appreciate, um, the, you know, the good and the beautiful, what God has given us by common grace and creation. Or you read a book in your living room. So a living room is a place where you can express faithfulness to the Lord. We can also sin in our living room, but we can also express faithfulness to the Lord. Or think about your kitchen what, what does being a disciple of Jesus look like in a kitchen? A kitchen is a place to serve others. It's a place to serve others. It's a place to prepare food for someone else. Uh, it's a per- place to prepare food for yourself and thank God for his provision in your life. Uh, a kitchen is a place to clean up. Maybe if you're married, your wife is better cooked than you. Maybe not. But you can, it's a place where you walk out practical obedience. It is one thing here to say, I'm worshiping God while we're singing before the throne of God, but your wife wants to know that you can worship God washing the dishes too. That is a practical service where I'm saying, what does it mean to prefer others? That's very, what does it mean to lay my life down for others? That, that's very ethereal. I think every guy in the room would probably, if it came to it, if you're a dad, you'd lay your life down. If it came to taking a bullet for your kid, you would do it. But whether we would all practically serve in the kitchen, I don't know. I don't know about that. That is practical discipleship. God has placed me. This is my kitchen. These are my people. I serve. I walk out my faith by serving. Uh, think about your kitchen uh, or your dining table or wherever you eat. Your, 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 uh, wherever you eat. That's a place of, if, you're, if you are a family, perhaps that's a place of discipleship. I sat with the Betchers at their family table last night and had dinner, had a great time, we got to know all his kids, we had great conversation, uh, getting to know each other, and, and so I could tell that was a place of discipleship, of leading the children to know the Lord. When I was, when my kids, my kids are all grown out of the house, but when my kids were young, the, the, the dining table, that was the place where we did our, read the word together and, and prayed, it was a, kind of a place of discipleship. So that was a place where following Jesus meant more than just wolfing down my meal thoughtlessly. It meant thanking God for provision. It meant enjoying good food. It meant discipleship of my kids. That's faithfulness at the table for me. Maybe you do it a different way. Your dining table can be a place of hospitality where you invite someone else in. Maybe you're single and live with roommates. You can still invite other people in. So this is a place where what is, this is a locale where I'm walking out my faith in a tangible way by reaching someone and bringing them to our table sharing the love of Christ by giving them a place to belong, literally a seat at the table, inviting someone else. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of bearing burdens, listening to others, or training your children to listen to others. It's a place to feast and celebrate. It's not just a piece of wood with some chairs around it. It's a place that God has called you to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, so this is very practical. Do I think about that? Uh, many of us have never thought about that. This is just 
I don't know, where I eat and then go do something else. Um, your bedroom. Do you ever think about this? Your bedroom is a place to humble yourself because this is a place you go to sleep, which is a place that you say, I am not God. I have to sleep seven or eight hours or your teenager, nine hours, but young people need more sleep. So where, whatever you need, six hours, seven, I don't know how long you sleep. Maybe eight hours is average. This is a place where every day for eight hours, I say, God has endless energy. I am his servant. I do not. I have to go unconscious, dead to the world, for eight, a third of every 24-hour period, which is acknowledging, God, you alone are self-sufficient. I am sufficient. Your bedroom is a place to humble yourself and acknowledge your creaturehood, to put your head on the pillow, thank God for the day, Ask for a good night's sleep. Wake up the next morning thanking God for a new opportunity. It's not just where I crash. It's a place where you, I don't know if you've thought, thought about sleep. That's part of your discipleship is rest. Some of us need to get in the bed. We're trying to do too much stuff and trying to be God and staying up late. Some of us need to get out of the bed and start our day. So some of us don't relate to the bed very well in terms of our discipleship sometimes. And you say, Lord, help me. If you're married... I'll go into no detail here, but uh, if you're married, it's a place of intimacy and romance as well, an important part of your life with your, your, with your wife. Uh, maybe it's the place you read your Bible in the morning, so it could be a place of your devotions. But your place, your bedroom, maybe it's a refuge. If you've got younger kids, sometimes I can remember when I had little kids, man, I could have good, actually the bathroom was a refuge. <laughs> Just go in there, lock the door, and maybe I'm not doing any business at all, but they're out there making a lot of noise. It's a quiet place to rest my head for, you know, clear my head for a minute. But, you know, so where, where it, it could be a place of refuge. You get the point. We're called to live out our faith all of life for the glory of God. You can just take the places you are and think, what is discipleship? And it gets very tangible, very practical, very convicting sometimes uh, to walk out our faith. So number one, think about your personal place. Number two, know your place. Think about the places outside your home that you go. How does God want you to walk in faith there in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood, um, in the different, different places that you are. What does faithfulness look like in your neighborhood, with your neighbors? Do you know the people in your building or on your block? Remember the old Sesame Street song, Who Are the People in Your Neighborhood? They're in your neighborhood. And they go around the people. The postman is a person in your neighborhood, you know, and all these people. Do you know your neighborhood? Uh, do you know the school if your kids are in school? Are you rooted in the kids' school? Do you know the teachers, the other parents? How about your workplace, which is interesting these days. Many are working from home. Many are working online. So we have to think more, more it's more difficult, but we have to think about this. Are, are you rooted in your work? Do you know your coworkers? Is it a value to know them, to understand them, to listen to them? Do you know the story of your coworkers' lives? Do you know their burdens, their challenges, if you work with others? What is that place that you work? If you do hands-on work in a place, then the people you work with, God has called you to a place, but he's also called you to the people in that place. So walking out our discipleship means, how do I love these people? How do I serve these people? Uh, if you have clients that you work for, how do I honor them? and How do I help them? How do I provide goods or services to them? that helps them flourish in some way in their life, that makes their life better. 
So how, where am I and how am I relating to the others? How about our third places? Maybe you go to the gym or maybe you regularly go to a park and see people there in the same spot regularly or a coffee shop or whatever it, it, it is. God doesn't just care about this room in the church. He cares a lot about this. But he cares about every place you go, and he cares about the people in those places. And he's put you there to be a witness to him, to express uh, not only love of God, but love of neighbor. He has a purpose in your places, and, he, and he didn't ju you just don't randomly live somewhere. You don't just randomly work somewhere. God has you specifically from eternity past designed to be in that locale with a specific purpose to express his love to a group of people. I don't know about you, but I don't think about these things a lot on a daily basis. I just go through my deal, and then I think about come to something like this. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking about it now. But I think the Lord wants us to live far more intentionally with our discipleship. Discipleship's not just avoiding the really bad sins, you know, uh, it's also living intentionally, fruitfully in the places of, with the people by his power, dependent upon him. The last, next session, we'll talk about being dependent on God in our work, being dependent. Um, engage your place. So think about your faithfulness. What does faithfulness look like? Know your place. And next, engage your place. How can we engage the people in our places? You know, I walked around yesterday some places with both uh, Jeff and then um, I was with Matt as well. But seeing they knew their place, they, uh, Jeff introduced me last night to his next door neighbor and there's history there and relationship there. And so refreshing just to see they know, Jeff, I know he lives this way. Um, he's a good example. You're a good example to me just seeing your, you live in your world, Jeff. You knew all your family members' name. Beautiful. It's powerful. It's powerful. Knew each kid by name. Uh, but so he knew his place. So it was, it was helpful to me. But here, here's an idea for you in your physical space. Why not go take some time in your places and do a prayer walk? This is what I've done. Ask the Lord to reveal to you, to give you insight and observation that you see your place in a new way. Some of you have lived in the same place for 10 years, and you're so familiar that you wouldn't see uh, you, you wouldn't even notice anything because you're just so familiar going through your routine. But think about your physical place. What if you were to just daily take a walk through your neighborhood and do this? Ask God to open your eyes to the people, to the needs, to the brokenness, to the opportunities where you live. Or maybe it's walking the park and saying, Lord, show me this environment. Help me to see what I'm, what I'm not seeing. Open my eyes. Or maybe it's sitting in, the, maybe if you frequent a coffee shop, for instance, maybe it's just sitting there with a journal and praying and taking some time one morning. Maybe sitting in an hour and watch who comes in and goes out in the busy times. What does God show you about opportunities or people in the area? Maybe your campus, yeah, I'm sorry, maybe your work has a specific place you work or you're at a school campus. Uh, now, obviously, you don't want to be weird about this so that you unhelpfully draw attention to yourself. But maybe you work in a place where you could take your lunch break and just walk in an area and mentally just be praying, Lord, show me. Show me where you've placed me. Show me the opportunities. I'm intentionally waiting and listening to you. I'm not going to take anything for granted. What might I notice? What might I see? Uh, what conversation might I have? Uh, maybe it's sitting, at, maybe you don't have a place you can walk around. Maybe it's just sitting at your desk at lunch or 
if you're in the trade, sitting in your truck at lunch and looking around and thinking, just pausing in a different way and seeing what might open up, what conversations might ensue, what might you learn. Uh, if you live a digital work life, then maybe it's praying before your Zoom call. Lord, I pray before this Zoom call that you, you would help me to serve the people that are on here. I'm going to mention them by name. I'm going to pray for them. And I pray something would come up that would give me an opportunity for further work or contact or relationship uh, with, that, with that person. Um, oftentimes we think about ministry as something that's out there and for someone else. And God wants you to know ministry is right here where you are. Discipleship is on the ground in the place where you live your life. It's not somewhere else. It's right where you are. In a book called Staying is the New Going, it's an interesting book, but it's worth the $15 for the title. Staying, well, you don't have to buy it now. I told you the title. That is outstanding. Staying is the New Going. He writes in there, the place you already live is the most obvious but most overlooked place to start ministry. The place you live, that you work, that you are, it's the most obvious place of ministry, but the place many of us don't even see. We've never thought of our kitchen. We've never thought of our block. We've never thought of our workplace. We've never thought of our part in these terms. We often think ministry is somewhere out there or it's at the church, and it is at the church. I'm not minimizing the church, but, but ministry is right where you are, and you're to engage it by living an intentionally faithful life there, asking God to open your eyes and open your heart to see people and opportunities that maybe you haven't seen before. The mission's not there. It's right here. It's right here. It's, it's, the, it's at your gym. It's the other parents on your kid's basketball team. Uh, it's your coworker who's going through a divorce. Uh, it's the widow who lives next door. Uh, we'll talk this afternoon. It's the work that's on your desk or springs from your toolbox or whatever it is that you do. It's right where you are. The key to fruitfulness in living as a faithful disciple, I believe, is realizing God is at work all around me where he's called me to be. And I just want to be faithful to be doing what he has called me to do, to see what he's doing and join in to what he's doing where I am. Whatever you do in word or deed, Wherever you are, with whomever you're with, that is where God wants you to be faithful. Here's the last category, and I'm, I'm going to build some fences on this because I don't want to overstate this. But think about your place. What's faithfulness look like in, our pla in your place? Know your place. Uh, engage your place. And here would be the last one. Stay in your place. Stay in your place. I'm going to build some fences. This isn't a legalistic. This isn't a command. But I do want to challenge us to think about this a little bit. In a highly, highly, highly mobile world where the idea of freedom is traveling with no place, being a digital nomad, you know. In the book, Saying is the New Going, he writes, effectiveness almost always grows over time while rooted in a place. There is a direct correlation between how long we are in a place faithfully living like Jesus and the impact we will have on people. I believe that, that wherever we work, wherever we live, wherever we go to church, um, there is a cumulative effect of ministry that's tied to being faithful over the long stretch and, and it, faithful for God to work in our own lives. Most people, many people don't stick around in a job long enough to walk through the very difficult 
very harrowing seasons of it where God changes your heart and life. It gets difficult, well, let's just go find something else. Many people, many people treat their relationships, their marriages, their friendships, their church. I'm there until it's really, really inconvenient. Then I'm gone, and you never grow. You never change in that environment. Uh, in most cases, fruitfulness is tied to long-term faithfulness. It's true in a neighborhood, in a job, in a church. Now, listen, I have moved houses in my neighborhood. I'm sorry, in my city. I don't believe it was a sin. I believe it was the right thing I was supposed to do. I'm not in the same church today that I was converted in, so I've been in more than one church in my life um, and had more than one job in my life. So I'm not here saying that I'm not, I don't want don't to overstate the case, but I do want to do this. I do want to challenge us to tamp down that impulse that something better's over there in that job with that location in that church. I, that impulse that something better is elsewhere is not a godly impulse. You may be supposed to be elsewhere, but, but that impulse can be looking for something uh, new. Not wrong or sinful to take a new job or to move to a new city. Um, but, but there's not as many good reasons as our culture tells us. Culture says whatever's best for you, whatever's easier, more profitable, more pleasant, less difficult, Whatever makes you happier is what you should be doing. That is the best place, whereas I just don't see that as a, a biblical value. We live in a culture of radical individualism, and yet we're called to build our lives to be a blessing to others, and that takes rootedness, and that takes depth. Let me give a church application. Um, I, don't for, I don't for a minute say it's God's will that everybody be in this church 10 years from now. I, I don't know God's will for you. But I do want to say the longer you are in a place, the more fruitful the relationships and your ministry become. I, I read a story about a guy named Will. And this guy named Will had moved to a church because he heard they had great community. And he didn't want to be in a church where he didn't have friends. He wanted to be in. But after a year, he didn't feel like he was in like he hoped. And so this is what I read about him. It says, Will told me the story of relocating his family to be part of a church that takes community seriously. After a year into the new location, he met with one of his pastors to talk about how things were going. Life was good, Will reflected, and he was grateful for the welcome that he and his family had received at the new church. But he wasn't sure he was experiencing the community he had expected. Frankly, Will had hoped more. The pastor listened to his misgivings, and then, the, then he asked Will how long he and his family had been in the church. Will said, about a year. The pastor replied, well, then I guess you've got about a year's worth of community. The pastor said, matter-of-factly, stay another year, and you'll have two years of community. Stay 30 years, and you might find what you're looking for. It's a, telling, it's a telling example because many of us don't even have a category for being in one church for five years or ten years or passing, staying, raising the next generation and the next generation, seeing your grandkids in the same church that you are. We, we, we're so tempted in our mobile society to move to the next spot, taking up the next thing. The reality is if God does move you to a new house, and he does at times, a new job, a new church, then we want to transfer to that new place 
not as consumers who are there to get everything we can to bless us and then move on when it's difficult to something we like better, but we want to be in that new place to invest our full lives of faithfulness, following Christ in our neighborhood, following Christ in our workplace, following Christ in our church, because he calls us to be rooted where we are. Fight the temptation to believe that real life is somewhere else doing something else with someone else. Real life is being faithful where we are. Discipleship is following Jesus where you are today, in your place today. Um, real life is found in applying the gospel where I am, not daydreaming of where I could be, investing my energy, being faithful where I am. Listen, we all want to be someone who's known as a faithful neighborhood in the, I'm, I'm sorry, a faithful neighbor in the building or in the house next door, a faithful coworker, a faithful church member, reliable in the workplace, reliable in the school or the sports league, committed to the church community so that whatever we do in word or deed, it's not some vague concept. It's very tangible, granular activity, living out my life for Jesus where he's planted me in this day with these people and anticipating the day when we'll have no relocation or no change. We will forever be in the place we were created for, the new heaven and the new earth. May God take the fidgeting of our spirits and calm us down to put our heads down on our knees in prayer and take our days one day at a time to be faithful where he's put us with the people he's put us with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, you, that we're physical beings, that we live in a physical location, that we live on a block or in a building, that we have a job maybe online maybe at a job site, maybe in an office, but that you've created us to be in those spots, that we have a church family, that we're sitting here with a room full of brothers physically that we can laugh with, pray with, weep with when there's grief, that we can experience life together. We, I thank you for people that have been in this community, this church since it was founded. Talked to someone at the beginning here, told me they were here at the beginning. Lord, thank you for, for years of faithfulness. And, Lord, we don't want to create new laws or be legalistic. We know you move us in the neighborhood. You move us jobs. You move us churches. We, we know that happens, and we want to follow you. But, Lord, give us the grace to be faithful where we are today and to live and act like we're here until you return, Lord, deep, building deep roots, faithful relationships. Help us think about our places and what it means to follow you faithfully. And give us grace to persevere when it's hard, to celebrate the blessings that we have, to find joy in faithfulness, and open our eyes to see what we're not seeing. Lord, many of us are so blind to the relationships in our own home and the privilege, to the relationships in our small group, to our coworkers and the opportunity there, to the neighbor in need. Lord, I can be so blind to what's happening in my own block. Open our eyes to see a world full of opportunity to serve and to love. I pray that the mean, so what feels meaningless and, and, and Lord, for what feels just so mundane, 
Lord, that you'd bring new life. Lord, some of us are living our lives and looking at a small black and white screen. I pray that you would open our eyes to look at a huge color panorama of all that's in front of us. Expand our hearts and our vision. Expand our hearts to be faithful, to love you and love our neighbor right where we are today. In Jesus' name, amen.